Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're glad that you could join us today as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. This week, we are looking at lesson number two. Lesson number two is God's grand Christ-centered plan. This is week two of a 14-week journey that we are taking through the book of Ephesians, and you are in for some exciting things today. But before we begin, let's start with prayer. Father, thank you for drawing us together again this week as we continue our study of the book of Ephesians. We ask that you would bless us with a deeper understanding of not just this book, but of you, your character, and your will for our lives. We ask your blessing on our study today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not only are we glad to have you with us today, we're also glad to have our special guest, Dr. John McVeigh. He is the president of Walla Walla University. He has also served as the dean of the seminary at Andrews University. John, welcome back once again. Nice to be back with you. So we've got a really exciting study today. This is God's grand Christ-centered plan. Last week, we kind of got an overview of the book of Ephesians, and we're, we're digging down into some of the meat of it this week. And we're really focusing on a a passage in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, that starts in verse 3 and goes down through verse 14. I'm going to read verse 3 because it kind of just gets us started, and then uh, I'm going to let you run with it because there's a whole lot here. Uh, Verse number 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And with that verse... There's 12 more, 13 more verses that, uh, well, maybe my math's not exactly right, <laughs> sure. but a few more verses that kind of unpack this and help yes. us to understand a, several grand themes here in the book of Ephesians. Help us walk through this. Well, this, this passage that's our focus for this week's lesson, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is a treasure, Eric. And it's a treasure because we have a ringside seat in the heavenly places, at the throne room of God, where we have a chance to listen, mouths agape, to the wondrous plans that God has for us as believers in Christ. And uh, we we get to go back clear before the foundation of the world to, to hear God through the prayers of Paul, to hear God speak grand promises and rich blessings to us as followers of Jesus. So so this is a passage that should encourage us, it should inspire us. It gives us, as you said, a, a ringside seat or a, a, a close-up view of not just what's happening around us, but of much deeper, much more spiritual, much more eternal things. We tend to think, don't we, that things happen to us randomly, that our lives were just a, a bit of floating flotsam in the cosmos, this passage corrects all of that, that uh, our lives, uh, our, our coming to faith in Jesus is something that has been a divine intention and dream throughout the eons of time past. And uh, uh, wonderful to have that ringside seat and to listen in on all of that. So help walk us through a little bit of this passage. What are we finding here? Sure. The way I like to summarize uh, this passage, Eric, is that there are eight verbs here. There are eight verbs, and they're all, they're all good. Nothing to fear at all from this passage. They're all things that God does for us on our behalf. So, number one, God blesses us. 
Aren't you glad for that? Well, that's encouraging. You know, God's God's intention is to bless us. In time immemorial, he intended, purposed to bless us. And let's not miss that thought just because it's expressed in in common language that we understand. God blesses us, and he does that in a specific way. Uh, He does that with every spiritual blessing. So get ready. This whole passage, there's nothing parsimonious here. He is not the strict accountant saying, I'm only going to give Eric, you know, this little bit of my grace. And eh, let's mete out two grams of forgiveness to Eric today. Not what's going on here. This is, this, is, this is grace poured out in abundance. This is forgiveness delivered in massive quantity, more than we could possibly need. He talks about every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. And then the, the location is interesting, isn't it? In the heavenly places or in the heavenly realms in Christ. And this is, this is how Paul in numerous places in Ephesians refers to heaven. And we'll want to unpack that. We'll probably do that as we study Lesson 4 because uh, that's an interesting study to trace those occurrences. But we would usually think about God blessing us down here. Right. The emphasis of this passage is what God does up there. And interesting to watch that spiritual geography. So not only does he talk about blessing us, he also, it says he chooses. Yes. How does that work out? He chooses uh, believers to be holy and blameless before him. Again, that, that moves counter to our expectation, or could move counter to our expectations of God. We might expect God to be nitpicking at our flaws and failings, and if we show up at the throne room, we can expect a long list. Why did you do this, that, and the other? And our lists are all long, aren't they? But again, God's character... God's basic modus operandi, way of operating toward human beings and toward, toward those of us who are believers, is, is not to curse but to bless, not to dismiss but to choose us and to choose us to be holy and blameless before him. So he blesses us, he chooses us, and we get down to verse number five, it says having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So he destines us or predestines us. Sure. Walk, walk us through that a sure. little bit. That language, predestined, is, is, is rather challenging, isn't it? Uh, to our Western ears, uh, rooted in individualistic societies where it's the freedom of the individual to do whatever she or, or he wishes to do that's really important to us. Uh, we, have, we struggle with this because this sounds like God is going to invade our freedom of choice and God is going to come in and say, well, I think I'll, I'll have Eric do this or I'll have Susan do that. I'll save Eric, but Susan is damned. That has the feeling to it. And there are those, of course, down in Christian history who have taken it more or less that way. I think we need to take a step back here and just uh, listen to that language, destined, probably the way I'd prefer to to translate it, but has destined us or predestined us. Uh, Let's listen that through the the ears of those uh, citizens of Ephesus. You remember, we're, we're in Ephesus in this letter, right? One of the great cities of the Roman Empire, perhaps the fourth largest city, third or fourth largest city 
And we have to kind of listen to some of this through their ears. And when we do that, something interesting happens. This is what happens. In fact, they do not belong to a democratic society where it's one person, one vote, and all the rest. Uh, Their lives are already destined. They understand themselves from their moment of birth to have been destined by a whole string of deities and powers. Um, Who they will be, what will happen to them is predestined at the moment of their birth by the particular conjunction of the stars and planets, which they regard as divine beings and deities that are entirely involved in their lives. So Paul is not speaking to people who believe they have individual choice to determine their future. He's speaking to people who are under the the pall of being predestined, the astral powers, the powers of darkness, the powers in the heavens, have already chosen who they will be, what they will become, everything about their lives. They are under the hand of fate. So it's different to read the passage through those ears than through our ears. You know, we have a tendency to, and it's a natural tendency, to view things through our own society, our own experiences, and it can be a little bit difficult to transport our minds back here to when this was written to a group of people that it was written to. Of course, there are applications in our lives. It's not as if the Bible is just written to them. But Paul was writing predominantly to the the people living in Ephesus, and we can can bring lessons out of that. In fact, we, we should and ought to. Uh, do that. So what else do we see in here? What are some other verbs that we that we find as we go through uh, this well, passage? Well, that's the first three verbs, right? God blesses, God chooses, God destines. Verb number four, he gives. He gives us. In, in the beloved, that is in Christ, he gives us his glorious grace. Verse six, if you're, if you're track, tracking it there. And of course, all of these blessings, he repeatedly reminds us, come to us from God the Father through Christ, in Christ, by Christ. Again, this is a Christ-saturated letter. So he does not wish us to forget uh, the role of Christ in the beloved. God, the Father, loves his son, Jesus Christ. And we are, in ways that are kind of challenging for us to understand, we're so wrapped, we're so tight with Jesus. When we're believers, we're so tied up with and tight with Jesus that the Father, looking to Jesus, sees us and pours out his grace through Christ upon us. So we've gone through four of mm-hmm. the eight. Yes. We've got four more to go. What's the next verb that, that we see here in this passage? Well, it's, it's a verb that, that I like to see translated something like lavished, uh, which he lavished upon us. Uh, in him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. So redemption is a term drawn from the slave market. To redeem something is to buy it back, to pay the price for freedom. So Christ, through his blood, through his atoning sacrifice, has paid the price, if you will, for our freedom from sin and Satan. Hallelujah, right? Uh, and, and has also given us forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, now, you know, that's a wonderful word, isn't it? For Again, who is God? What's his attitude toward us? Uh, is he parsimonious? 
Is he parceling bits and pieces out to us? Is he keeping account of all of the spiritual assets he's pouring into the life of Eric and, and John? This, this picture gives us a wondrous picture of, of God who lavishes, pours out with utter generosity all the spiritual blessings that we need. So he's not trying to give us just little bits and pieces. No. He's no. wanting to just pour out in abundance, overflowing yes. his, his, his many graces. And, and Paul's trying to encourage us to, to step into that abundance, to not think about uh, entering a world where there's a tight budget on grace. He's inviting us to enter into the very character of God as one who blesses us, who pours out upon us, who lavishes forgiveness and redemption upon us. Then in verse number nine, we find something else. It says, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. What do we find in that verse? Yeah, so so God has all these great intentions for us, right? He has this plan for our lives. It involves us coming to faith in Jesus. It involves us living rich lives of confidence in in God and the grace he expresses every moment through Christ. That's that's what he has in in store for us. But if he never reveals that to us, (laughs) if we don't know about it, that's a problem, right? Right. And so Paul is making the point here that not only does God hold these heavenly counsels and before the foundation of the world make these great statements and, and decisions about the availability of faith and grace in our lives and the lives of all human beings, not only does he do that, but he troubles himself to reveal that to us. And this for Paul is at the heart of what he calls the mystery or the mystery of the gospel. As we move through Ephesians, we'll see him using this term. It's often tied very much to the the special nature of the gospel as Paul understands it, which is focused on the fact that it includes both Jews and Gentiles, you know, they're both included. That's part of it. Here it's this, this wonderful idea that he troubles himself to reveal it to us. It's a mystery, but it's now an open secret because through the gospel Paul, that Paul preaches, it has become revealed to us. I think that, that gives us a beautiful picture into the character of God that he wants us to know what's going on. He wants us to know how he feels about us and what's available to us and that we don't have to be uh, discouraged in this world and, and despondent, but that there is, a, there is hope. In fact, there's an immense amount of hope. I think that's a, a beautiful thing. We get down to verse number 10. And in verse 10, it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So this idea of the fullness of time, unpack that a little bit for us. I'll try. Uh, I mean, we are dealing with here, Eric, we're dealing with the wonders of God's grace expressed in the councils of heaven. So uh, uh, I, we, the things that are revealed belong to us, right, and to our children. And uh, it does seem to me that this is, this is pretty, pretty, pretty grand news. So verses 9 and 10 are the thesis statement for the book. We may wish to come back to this after the break, but uh, he sets forth his purpose in Christ for the fullness of time. So I take that to mean that in, in eons past, 
there is a council among the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three are mentioned in many passages in Ephesians. So let's assume it's a council among, among the, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they make some decisions about salvation history as it will unfold on planet Earth. And they, they determine that in the fullness of time, at the end of time, which for Paul includes his day, okay, the last days, the eschaton, the fullness of time, certain things will be happening. Christ will appear. Christ will come. And, and so I think that's what's being discussed here is the council, eon, deep eons of time among the Godhead about salvation history on earth and the appearance of Christ. He wants us to know that the appearance of Christ is no happenstance. Uh, the appearance of the gospel, as Paul preaches it, including both Jews and Gentiles, is no happenstance. This is long planned. This is from time immemorial. And we have the privilege, Paul says, of watching it be worked out. So we're going to come back and, and pull that apart a little bit after the break, but I want to kind of tie together this section looking at these, these different verbs, these uh, eight verbs that are in this passage, with verse number 13. Verse number 13 says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Here we see a, a, a very, very much a verb that is considered an end-time verb, and that is sealing. Yes. Paul's using it here in the book of Ephesians. We kind of toss it about living here in 2023. Talk a little bit about this. Sure. So to back up to verb 7, uh, the, the verb there is that God heads up all things in Christ. We've talked about that as part of the thesis statement of the letter. And that's, an, that's really important. We'll, we'll, we'll be touching on that as we move through the letter. And then comes the eighth and final verb. And it talks about God sealing believers with the Holy Spirit. And this goes back to the first century context where things were, t- were still, s- still sealed. Letters were sealed. Con- valuable contents of an amphora or a, a storage jug would be sealed uh, and, and so on. So it's a, it's a mark of ownership, uh, and certainly God places his mark of ownership on us as we declare faith in Christ, we're his. And that ha- happens here at the time of conversion. Very good. So we're going to come back in just a moment as we continue looking at this section of the book of Ephesians. But I want to encourage you, Make sure you pick up the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath School lesson. It is the book of Ephesians, or a book called Ephesians, by Dr. John McVeigh. You can find this at itiswritten.shop. Again, at itiswritten.shop. We're going to come back in just a moment as we continue looking at this incredible passage in the book of Ephesians. We'll be right back. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, inviting you to join me for... 500. Nine programs produced by It Is Written taking you deep into the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. We'll take you to Wittenberg and to Belgium, to England, to Ireland, to Rome, to the Vatican City, and introduce you to the people who created the Reformation, who pushed the Reformation forward. 
We'll take you to sites all throughout Europe where the reformers lived and in some cases died. We'll bring you back to the United States and take you to a little farm in upstate New York and show you how God spread the Reformation here. Don't miss 500. You can own the 500 series on DVD. Call us on 888-664-5573 or visit us online at itiswritten.shop. Welcome back to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We are continuing our study of lesson number two. I'm here with Dr. John McVeigh. And John, we talked before we went to break a little bit about the ceiling. Let's tease that out just a little bit more. What's going on sure. with the ceiling? We, we mentioned that uh, seals in ancient times played important roles. Uh, there was a privacy role, particularly with letters. Uh, but they also marked ownership on the part of someone of whatever is sealed. And so... In this instance, that seems to be very active, doesn't it? Someone in Ephesus comes to faith in Jesus, and Paul says, at that moment, when you, when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you, you are sealed. Now, we often uh, reflect on passages uh, that have to do with sealing, like what Revelation, Ezekiel and Revelation, where the, the, a sealing occurs at the end of time, before Christ's return, marking end-time people as belonging to God. What we have to do is get used to the idea that Paul can, as he does here and in chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians, refer to a sealing that occurs at the beginning of the Christian life, not at the end of time, Uh, though it's related to the end of time. Because if you look at what he says here in verses 13 and 14, uh, in him... You were sealed, jumping to the end of verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we need to understand something about this sealing. It is personified by the presence of the Spirit in our lives. So the Spirit's presence working in our hearts and lives constitutes, if you will, the seal, the mark of God's ownership upon us. So we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit at our conversion, and that Holy Spirit, Paul describes, as the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it, which would be at when? The end of time. There you go. So so it is related to the end of time, but from the beginning of my Christian life until the end of my life or potentially the end of, end of time when I would participate by God's grace in that eschatological end time seal, through that whole span of time, my life as a Christian disciple bears a seal, the presence of the Holy Spirit, marking me as God's own. The beautiful picture of a sealing going on. I want to look some, at something else here, John. When we, when we look at the introduction to the book of Ephesians, it's a little different than you might look at the introductions to other books. Mm-hmm. This one kind of stands out. What makes it different? What makes it stand out? Uh, what makes it stand out is the, the volume of worship language that we find here. So in Paul's other letters, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, we always tend to get some worship element that occurs right there at the beginning, a, a usually a thanksgiving, where Paul is reporting, giving God thanks for the addressees, the people that he's writing to in, in the letter. That's generally what is there. However, in in Ephesians, we have this richness of what goes on. 
uh, if if I'm if I'm getting it right here, we have a brief prayer benediction, chapter one, verse two. Uh, we have that's praying for God's blessing upon people. We have this lengthy, what we could call a praise benediction, which we're studying this week. A praise benediction is thanking God for how He's been active in the lives of of believers. Uh, then you have a Thanksgiving section, chapter one, verses fifteen and sixteen. You have a prayer report, chapter one, verses sixteen through twenty-three. Uh, you move a little further into the letter. You have another prayer report at the beginning, at at the last half of chapter three, and finally a doxology. And then you have some exhortations about worship that occur in chapter five and six. So you have this rich array of praise and worship language in the epistle to the Ephesians, which is highly unusual. I think it's fair then for us to call Ephesians a kind of handbook of Christian worship because it gives us so much of this praise and worship language, and we can't forget that the letter itself is written to be read out as a part of Christian worship. So if you if you want to go to some place in the New Testament that talks a lot about worship and gives us some examples of how early Christians, particularly particularly Paul, worship. This would be a so beautiful introduction, yeah. a unique introduction, unique introduction, and a great handbook or guidebook for draws us. Draws us into an atmosphere of worshiping before the throne of God, particularly into an atmosphere of that key term, thanksgiving. Draws us into how important it is to thank God. John, we don't have too much time left, but I wanted to come back to verses 9 and 10. You made mention yes. of some significant things in there. Help us to see one or two key more things in there. Again, that's the thesis statement for the letter. Here's God's ultimate plan. You want to listen in in the throne room. You want to hear God's plan. Here's what you're gonna, gonna, going to find. This is God's plan for the fullness of time. To head up, head up or sum up everything in Jesus Christ. And, says Paul, I do mean everything, everything in heaven and everything on earth united in Christ. I won't use many Greek words as we chat together, but there's a fascinating one here. It's anakephaliao. It's a Greek verb that means literally to head up. You hear the word kephale, the Greek word for head there. And it's an accounting term. Back in ancient times, they didn't they didn't put a, a row of figures on a page and then sum them up down here. They put a row of figures on a page and they summed them up. We still use that language today, don't we? They summed it up at the top. So it's God's role, God's goal, God's grand plan to sum everything up in Christ. And when I choose him as, as a, a person in Ephesus or a person in the world today, when I choose Jesus, I am joining that great plan my life is getting headed up and caught up in Jesus. John, thank you for helping us understand the, the thesis statement of Ephesians and these beautiful passages here in 3 through 14. And thank you for joining us this week. We're looking forward to seeing you again next week as we continue our study of the book of Ephesians. Next week, lesson number three. Until then, God bless you, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next time on Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. <laughs> 